Welcome to The Whole View. I'm Stacey Toth of realeverything.com. I'm all about loving the skin you're in and being healthy inside and out. And I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne of thepaleomom.com. I believe that scientific literacy is the key to improving public health. Welcome back to The Whole View. It's our first one in 2021. I know. I'm so excited. I am excited to talk about habits because while I don't really have New Year's resolutions, we've talked about this a couple of times um, every year on the show, I do just need to reset myself after having taken, you know, some time off over the holidays to get back into habits. Um And I know you have done a lot of reading and research on the science of this. Um, And I know that um, probably all of our listeners are feeling that sluggishness and difficulty jumping back into, you know, if your kids have been out of school or your work schedule changed or anything that kind of breaks a habit, it's it's like, oh, I got to get back into the habit now. And I'm definitely in that phase. Yeah, so I'm I'm kind of like the opposite. So I I make habit-centered resolutions every year. And this is something that I've done probably for 15 or so years. Um, for me, I take New Year's as a time to like really evaluate my habits and, and figure out what I'm going to work on. So I, I don't make goal-centered resolutions, but always habit-centered. And this year I was, um, you know, thinking about habits and thinking about the sort of like body shaming, predatory marketing that we're seeing, you know, lose the quarantine 15. And I just feel like, you know, the, that type of marketing, the, the new year, new you thing is always so nauseating, like every year, but it just feels like so much more so this year. And I don't know if it feels more so because there's just so much more of that marketing or if that marketing is coming at a time where, um, certainly I feel more emotionally, emotionally vulnerable. Like I, I feel like, um, you know, 2020 was a tough year. Uh, that's the understatement of 2020 right there. Um, and so I don't know if it's like, just maybe I'm in an emotional place where, um, my, my normal skepticism of all, you know, marketing and claims and commercials and everything that, you know, get put in front of me, my, my normal first reaction, everything is like, I'm going to fact check that. And this time I'm feeling more of an emotional response before my uh, skepticism kicks in. And so I started um, thinking like, I'm going to, I'm going to see what's new in habit forming research since the last time I did a deep dive into this, which was about five years ago. And it was fascinating. There's so much cool new science on habits. And I just, I ended up falling down the PubMed rabbit hole of habit neuroscience. And what I came out of, you know, when I emerged from this, um, this deep dive into the research, I was like, this is so important and so actionable. And it actually, I think, helps pull on a lot of threads for how we can basically set ourselves up to succeed, period. Like not just succeed with New Year's resolutions, but like how do we affect positive change in our lives in a way that um, sticks. And, uh, and so I'm really excited. I'm really excited to dive into this. 
I thought you were going to dive into it. I'm excited. I'm ready. (laughs) Okay, then I'll do it. Sure. Um, So why don't we start with basically talking about like scientifically what is a habit? I think um, I think it's actually more common when we like just think about habits to think about bad habits that we want to break. So we think about, you know, smoking or biting nails or uh, doom scrolling or, um, you know, a bad habit of, you know, always uh, grabbing some kind of junk food at a certain, you know, in order to watch whatever TV show and what, you know, late at night, right? Like we have these, we can easily identify bad habits we want to break. Um, but habits are actually a really important form of learning. So what happens is uh, a habit is actually a learned action that we perform automatically when we um, encounter that action's linked stimulus. So there's some kind of thing that triggers our brain to perform this action, and it is done without conscious thought, without a decision. Um, And actually, when it's a real habit, it is insensitive to the reward. So when you're forming the habit, reward is really important. Once it's a habit, the reward could be there or not be there. The brain doesn't care anymore. And it's also insensitive to uh, an obvious uh, action effect link, which is really fascinating. So it's like completely subconscious, automatic. Um, they're performed, these actions are performed the exact same way every time we do them. Um, and they they tend to stick over the long time, term. And what's really interesting about this form of learning, about 40% of the actions that we take every single day are this type of automatic stimulus response action um, that requires no conscious thoughts. So about 40% of the things we do every day is habitual. We're not making a decision. We're not thinking about it. We're just doing it. And the reason why we have developed this, evolved this ability to form habits is it actually um, does something really important in terms of freeing up basically like brain thinking resources. So what happens when we're learning a habit, it starts off as a routine. So it starts off as uh, an action that we're performing in order to achieve some kind of outcome. So it's a goal-directed behavior. It's reinforced by some kind of reward. Um, And it is performed in this, what's called basically a stable context. So we perform this thing routinely enough um, that eventually, like as we're learning it, at the beginning, we're learning how to do this thing, whatever it is. Uh, learning how to drive is a really good example. At the beginning, we're using multiple parts of our brain to, to drive this behavior, right? So at the beginning of learning how to drive, we're using our prefrontal cortex, which is like our thinking part of the brain, the part that, of the brain that is really responsible for conscious thought, decision-making, right? We're using this to like think about each part of what we're doing, right? So we're thinking about how we're taking our, you know, foot off the gas and how quickly we're pushing it onto the brake. We're thinking if we're driving an automatic, we're thinking about, you know, adding the clutch and shifting the gears. We're also thinking about steering and don't forget the mirror checks and paying attention to the surroundings and controlling where the car's going and staying below the speed limit. Like there's a lot of different things that our thinking brain is keeping track of. As we learn... Um, what happens is the, the, what starts off in multiple parts of the brain. So the thinking part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, and also the basal ganglia, um, which is the part of the brain 
that is actually controlling voluntary movements, they're, they're all working together. And what happens is the more practiced this action becomes, the more the prefrontal cortex stops working so hard and the basal ganglia takes over. And so the basal ganglia, right, it's controlling our movements. Um, you know, it's a really important part of the brain for pattern recognition, for memory, also for emotion, which is really interesting. It takes over. And once it's a habit, the prefrontal cortex isn't actually involved at all. So the part of the brain that makes decisions, um, that is, you know, executive functioning and cognitive control, right? It's like planning and information processing, um, working memory, reasoning, problem solving, organization, inhibitory control. That part of the brain is just basically like no longer involved in controlling this action. So think about if you've been driving a car for a really long time, how you can like just be driving home from work or school and all of a sudden realize, oh, I have no idea what happened the last 10 minutes. Like I've been driving this. I'm I'm home now. I do not remember the last 10 minutes of driving. It and is disturbing I when you like shut off that part of your brain and then you're yeah. like, wait, what just? <laughs> yes. So your prefrontal cortex was not uh, involved in the last 10 minutes of driving. Your basal ganglia took over. Fortunately, you've trained your basal ganglia to do your mirror checks and pay attention to your surroundings, right? So um, the reason why that can happen is because driving has become such a um, routinely performed learned behavior that it is a habit. And what that does is it actually frees up the prefrontal cortex to do other things. That's why you can have a conversation while driving or listen to an awesome podcast such as The Whole View while driving. So all of all of our ability to sort of actually multitask. So if you think about... But not checking um, show notes while driving. Clearly not reading or texting while driving. <laughs> that is not okay because it's not a habit. You can't you, you, you can't form words without your prefrontal cortex. Um, actually, that's not entirely true. So social language is habitual. So um, if I go, hey, Stacy, how are you? My automatic response sometimes when someone says like, um, th they say uh, a question to you, but you think they're saying like, good morning, and then you respond back with something that doesn't make any sense. Is that what you're referring to? Um, <laughs> or... Uh, Someone goes, um, wonderful day, isn't it? And you say, good, how are you? Exactly. No, that's <laughs> yeah, exactly yeah. what I mean. <laughs> yeah. um, so it's social language is a form of habitual learning. So we have these programmed responses. Like if somebody, if you're just passing someone on the street and they ask you how you are or say it's a lovely day, they don't really want to know like all of the horrible things that happened to you that morning, right? Like your, your programmed response is like, good, how are you, right? We have these... Um, types of interactions with people, especially people that aren't sort of part of our, um, like close relationships. Um, those types of social language actually is some of the, the last language, um, to go. So my, um, 98 year old grandmother, um, has, uh, advanced dementia and the only language that's left is the social language. Um, and so one of the interesting things about it, every once in a while she has a moment of lucidity and we can have an actual conversation, but most of the conversations are these type of programmed, isn't it a lovely day? Yes, the weather's beautiful, right? It's this type of like programmed, scripted almost, um, social language interaction. 
And it really has to do with this type of learning. And it's really important because it frees up basically like thought resources for other things. So we can be problem solving while we're out walking the dog, right? Like we can be thinking about something important while we're chopping vegetables for dinner. It basically allows us to truly multitask because the the basal ganglia can basically drive our, our motions without us having to, to put any effort of conscious thought into it. Um, and what's really interesting is on a normal day, about 40% of our, our actions are driven by behaviors, but we fall back on behaviors even more when we are stressed, when we're tired, uh, when we're distracted. And so there are times where we actually perform behaviors even more automatically. And that's why focusing on habits is so important because if you're going to fall back on this automatic system, this automatic system is actually really, really cool. It's very, very efficient. It saves all of this valuable mental energy, but it comes at the expense of flexibility. So the context, right, the routine um, of how when we learned this action becomes the stimulus and we get to this point where every time we encounter the stimulus, we automatically perform this behavior what we want, what what sets us up for success is actually forming more good habits. So when we're not thinking about it or we're tired or we're stressed or we're distracted um, or we're just multitasking and using our prefrontal cortex for something else, we want the automatic behavior that we didn't decide to do to be something that's going to help us progress towards our goals. And it's really interesting. They've done studies on people who... Um, score really highly in measures of self-control, right? So like people who have a lot of willpower and who are very successful at whatever they're, you know, measuring in these studies. And what the studies have revealed is those people aren't successful because they're exerting all of this self-control and willpower throughout the day. They're actually highly effective at forming good habits that contribute to successful outcomes. So they're actually just people who naturally make all these good habits. So when they go on autopilot, it's a, it's a good thing that they're doing. And that's why habits are like super cool because we can actually use this system to, um, to make change that can actually stick through a stressful time, through, um, you know, a tired day, um, that we don't have to sort of like muscle our way through healthy changes if we can focus on the habit that's driving the behavior. I think that makes a lot of sense and is interesting because I think of myself as someone who generally is very in control, <laughs> just per- in control, period, um, to a d- disturbing level. But um, <laughs> sorry, I'm just gonna get the giggles there. <laughs> Because you know how true yeah. it is. Um, and I do have excellent willpower about a lot of things. But as you were talking about that, I was thinking about those things which creep up on me. You know what I mean? That I'm not in control of. And it's totally things that I don't have a habit about. What's interesting to me, though, is kind of the chicken and the egg question is, do I have a difficult time forming habits because those... um hit my brain in a different sort of way. Do you know what mm-hmm. I'm doing? Yep. Do you know what I mean? You're going to. Yeah. So um, what's really fascinating is just over the last few years, um, again, since the last time I really dove into the research on, on habit formation, 
there's been a lot of studies that have tried to break down like how we form habits. Um, so like very common um, models are to like to take a bunch of people and get them to floss daily. Like fascinating uh, that there's so many people who don't floss daily that this becomes a real, I mean, let's face it, like we've all had periods of time. I don't floss daily. Okay. So um, this is, this is a really interesting like scientific model. Um, and then they can manipulate the, the, the stimulus so they can have people either floss before they brush their teeth or after they brush their teeth, right? So you got to think about what's the thing leading into brushing your teeth. Well, that might not always be the same, right? So it changes from a really stable stimulus to an unstable stimulus. Um, they can look at, they can give people like uh, sort of like information, like try to explain what the benefits of flossing are and see if that type of motivation of understanding the behavior, why it's beneficial, if that changes things. And so scientists have actually really tried to get very granular in terms of not just understanding what areas of the brain are involved and what, you know, like what neurotransmitters, uh, what, you know, what receptors, like all of that is, is fascinating science. Um, although like a little bit overwhelming. Um, but more importantly, they sort of looked at like how you can basically set up the learning phase of a habit to guarantee that that habit will be formed and that habit will stick. And so I think we should start with like that, what the science is telling us in terms of like how to form a good habit. So some of the things that are really important, um, one is like, first of all, is to just give some thought, right. In terms of like how, what is the habit that I want to form? Like what's the goal and what's the simple action that I want to be performing automatically without, without conscious thought that will get me to my goal. And that's an action that I can perform on a routine basis. So that means same time, same place, um, right? Same, same trigger. Um, and so that's what's considered a stable context. And that's one of the things that I think um, can make either forming a habit or sort of maintaining a habit really challenging is that stable context. So giving some thought into like, what is the stimulus? What do, what do I need the stimulus to be? Um, and what, like, what is the stimulus that I don't want, right? Like I don't want to make, um, the stimulus for flossing my teeth being something that's I'm not going to encounter on a daily basis or that might, um, right. If the stimulus is saying goodnight to my child and then I go floss my teeth. Well, when my child's bedtime changes to a later time, then that breaks the whole cycle. Right. So that stimulus is not, uh, what's considered a stable context because it's something that's likely to change. So then in habit formation, there's a period of time where we need to be dedicated to, this type of learning, right? So we basically, every time we encounter this chosen time and chosen place, right? This chosen stimulus, we do the action and it gets easier over time so that eventually we're forming it automatically. But what's really interesting is that it's, it's basically a complete myth that it takes 21 days to make or break a habit. The scientists who have basically looked at this without manipulating, um, without manipulating the, the very, various variables and basically just like, here's the habit you guys are going to form. Let's see how long it takes before you're flossing your teeth every day automatically that it, 
the average length of time is about 66 days, but it actually varies from about 18 to 254 days. That's about eight months. So that, I think that's also part of this uh, approach to healthy changes. When we think about it in terms of developing good habits is we need to get away from the 21 or 30 day challenges because those aren't long enough for that type of you know, good choices to become habitual. Whoa. So <laughs> I've always thought of it as something like um, 27 days to build a habit or, you know what I mean? Like I think mm-hmm. of it as like if, if you commit to something for like three weeks to a month, it's that for the most part, can we, can you give me some sort of hope that like, that feels like a habit for most things for me. Maybe not uh- like the learning to drive home and turning that part of your brain off. <laughs> um, yeah. So there's probably a few different factors in there. So for some people, um, uh, habit learning is sort of like inherently easier. So um, generally, if you have a really strong working memory, um, that is something that can lead to faster habit formation. And how hard the thing is, right? Like, how complicated that action is, how frequently you're repeating it throughout the day. If it's just a thing that you're doing once a day, it's going to take more days. So repetition is a big factor here. But what's really interesting is the studies that have really tried to dissect, like what are the things that we can do to speed up habit formation? And one of the um, one of the biggest factors is actually going into this with a positive attitude, which um, I don't know that I would have predicted just, you know, like, yeah, I'm going to floss my that, teeth every day. No, I can totally see being open to change as making it easier to change because that's essentially what it boils down to. Sure. And being... Um, excited about this change that we're doing. So they've, they've done this in studies, again, of like flossing and they've given people like a little educational thing of like, this is why flossing's good. This is what it's going to do for you. Um, and then they change other, right. They, they, they've got lots of other little things that they're tweaking. Um, but in this, like one particular study we can link to in the show notes, they, um, basically measured, the attitude towards flossing with a questionnaire. And it was statements that were related to the information that they provided. And it went from strongly agree all the way to strongly disagree. And basically the more a person understood the benefits of flossing and thought positively about working on flossing as a habit, the more likely they were to have formed the habit by four weeks, which was one of the endpoints of the study. And have habit maintenance at eight months, which was the other end point. So, you know, uh, to me, like I look at this research and I'm like, this is, (laughs) this explains my entire life. Um, Because I'm a person who really sees empowerment in knowledge. And I am a person who naturally seeks out the science underpinning any particular choice that I'm, you know, want to understand, right? Why is this such a good choice? I don't want someone to just be like, eat more vegetables. I want to know why eating a lot of vegetables is so good for me. And so I think that this is, this is one of the, um, one of the things that we can do as we're looking at forming good habits is, you know, dive into some of the whys, right? Really try to understand how this is going to 
benefit us. And that actually ties into the another thing that is really important for habit formation, which is reward. So even though once the habit is formed, it is no longer linked to reward, right? Like once once we're performing something automatically, um, we still have some reward circuitry going on in the back in the background. But if the reward starts decreasing lower and lower, think about it in terms of like eating um, cookies or chocolate or something, right? Candy. Um, when we started the habit of eating candy, we were rewarded by the delicious flavor of the candy. Um, but it becomes a habit where we start eating the candy automatically and we're not even thinking about, thinking about how it tastes. And they've actually done studies with like habitual popcorn eaters at the movies and shown that if they give them stale popcorn, they still eat it, right? Like it's not good anymore. Oh, totally. Yeah. Right? That you're just and also like um nuts at a table and you're having conversation and you just keep like reaching and eating even mm-hmm. though you're not consciously making a choice to right. eat. Yeah. And it, and you can eat a bad nut and be like, "Oh, that was gross." And then 5 minutes later, <laughs> you're still eating the nut. Totally. Now you know some of them are bad. Like it's um yeah, so that is the type of thing that's driven by um, that is driven by habit. But what's really interesting is, even though habits are insensitive to rewards, rewards actually reinforce habit formation, and it's something um, called the habit loop. It's a neurological loop, and so basically, the the learning of a habit is this like simple like three steps that go round and round. So it is cue, right? That is the stimulus, the the trigger, the thing that causes us to do the action. The second step is the action. The third step is the reward. And that basically reinforces us to learn to com- like to connect stimulus and action in our brains. And so um, studies have shown that basically the the higher the reward, and it's the higher the perceived reward, right? So that that means it's not like the more sugar is in the candy, it's how we perceive it. Like, is this a candy I really like versus a candy that I'm like, meh, right? So it's um, the higher the perceived reward, the fewer the repetitions it takes for something to become a habit, which is why it's so easy to kind of develop these like bad food habits because the way candy and the reason this is such a good example is engineered to have this like super high reward response, right? Like a type of reward response that we wouldn't find in nature. It's designed to basically trigger all of the things that our brain goes like, yeah, you know, this is lots of sugar and fat and salt. This is going to, you know, help survive. I, I must eat more. Right. So it sort of manipulates these very sort of primal survival circuitry in our brain drives up the reward really quickly, becomes a habit. Um, and even what's interesting is once it's a habit, we're no longer experiencing reward the same way, right? We're no longer enjoying the flavor of that food anymore the same way we did because we're eating it automatically, but it became a habit, in this case, a bad habit, um, much more rapidly because that reward is so high. So uh, sugar is obviously not the only type of reward. There's lots of different types of reward that have been shown to speed up habit formation. Um, so pleasure, which is what 
good taste would fall under is considered any kind of positive and fairly immediate sensory experience. Um, so this is also why not just delicious, sugary, addictive foods um, can become habitual overeating, but this is also why intoxicating substances can be habit-forming, right? Um, things that are biochemically addictive. It's really interesting because with smoking, there's two and you know alcoholism and and um, drugs. There's two different aspects to the addiction. There is the actual like biochemical addiction piece, and there's the habit piece. Um, those habits are formed really quickly because the reward um, is so high because of intoxication giving pleasure, basically. Um, another form of reward is intrinsic motivation, and this is where I think uh, there's a really strong link to the like the positive. Um, a approach to, to like, I, I feel really positively about my habit. Um, intrinsic motivation is wanting to perform an action because of anticipated inherent enjoyment of doing so. And intrinsic motivation has been shown to be a much more powerful reward than extrinsic motivation. So extrinsic, extrinsic is I'm doing this to please somebody else. Intrinsic is I'm doing this to please myself. Um, and, uh, you know, I think this has been sort of well shown in the scientific literature when they look at, you know, people who are quitting smoking, for example, is they need to be doing it for themselves, not for their families or for somebody else, right? Like it needs to be this internal motivation, which is what intrinsic motivation is. And the, the last sort of piece of, uh, last type of reward that has been shown to be really strongly linked to habit formation is called positive outcome expectancy. So understanding that there will be a good effect um, as a result of performing this action. And so that you can kind of see there's like really sort of blurry lines between having a, you know, positive attitude about a habit and ex having a positive outcome expectancy. You can kind of see like, oh, you know, there's the, the, in the Venn diagram of those two things, there's, there's a lot of overlap. And that overlap is where we want to live, where like, I understand that this thing is going to be good for me, that I'm going to have this good result, even if it's a long-term result and not an immediate result. And I am, I'm, I feel really positively about doing this thing. So I'm motivated internally to keep working on this. And that kind of mindset going into a habit has been shown to be really beneficial. And like, there's also the flip side, right? So negative outcome expectancy hinders um, habit formation. So if we, if we're like, yeah, uh, I know I need to floss my teeth, but I have inflamed gums and I know it's going to hurt. Um, anticipation of the pain of that experience makes it much harder to form that good flossing habit. So also being aware as we're setting ourselves up to form good habits, be aware of where the opposite can actually derail us, I think is really important. That makes a lot of sense in the context, too, of, um, I don't know, I've only seen it in movies. I'm not saying that I'm aware of this ty type of like behavioral response. But when you, for example, on Game of Thrones, um, and what was his name? Reek? Like the way that he mm -hmm. was treated. And then even though they weren't actively doing bad things to him like his brain was trained to expect that if he didn't perform a certain behavior then a bad thing would happen and they do that a lot with like 
animals too when they're trying to train animal behavior that there's like a bad thing that happens when they do one thing versus you know if they don't do it then they don't experience the bad thing so relating that back to like the habits and flossing and not wanting to get into a habit if it doesn't feel good kind of was like a light bulb moment to me I'm like what's happening to our human brains because as we humans like to deny we are in fact animals (laughs) (laughs) yeah and I think actually what's really interesting is if you apply this to something like dog training you can see how much more powerful positive reinforcement is for good behavior than negative reinforcement is for bad behavior. Not that there isn't necessarily a rule for both, but, um, but it's really because reinforcing good habits with rewards is, is such a powerful form of learning. Um, what's really interesting is breaking a bad habit is like a, a really different thing. So the best way to break a bad habit is to replace it with a good one. So if in that case, we're habit forming, right? We're all the stuff we just talked about where reward is really important. We're positive. Um, attitude is really important and we can, um, basically go, okay, here's the stimulus that normally causes this thing. So here's, uh, when I, uh, sit in front when I sit in front of a movie and I normally eat all this junk food Instead, I'm going to eat vegetable sticks, right? Like, and I'm going to eat my vegetables. Um, you're, you're taking the stimulus and you're changing the behavior. Or um, I'm going to start drinking water when I have lunch instead of soda, right? So I'm taking this, um, you know, bad habit that I used to have and I'm replacing with a, it with a good habit. That is always the easier way to address good habit formation when you also need to break a bad habit. But there are times where breaking a bad habit means we're just going to stop doing the action and not replace it with anything new uh, when I when I encounter the stimulus. And that is actually really, really tough because uh, it's not like we chose to do the action, right? We We're we've learned to perform that action automatically. And this is why it is so, so tough to, um, you know, get, you know, get off the ground with, you know, to, to get very far in these, you know, a lot of diets, right. When you think of it as a diet instead of a lifestyle, um, and I'm, I'm going to not just not eat this thing, right. That's a, much harder thing to do because we have to be, we have to like break this automatic behavior. Um, and, and so there's, there's a couple of things that can help if this is, you know, part of looking at positive change is going to mean breaking a bad habit that can't necessarily be easily replaced. Like, okay, now I'm going to say, instead of eating junk food during this movie, I'm not going to replace it with eating vegetable sticks. I'm going to replace it by eating nothing that that becomes a much harder thing to do than replacing it with eating something healthy healthy instead. But what's interesting is you're going to be shocked at this, Stacey. Science says the thing that's really important not to do when you're trying to break a bad habit is use that willpower. Interesting. To like switch it to something else is something. I really liked the idea of saying, okay, when I watch TV, if I want a snack, that's my time to eat vegetables. Like, I I love that idea of, to me, that's one of those like, oh, I can do that kind of things. Um, So, so much better than saying, but I'm not going to eat chocolate. 
<laughs> not, but I'm definitely not going to eat chocolate. And so studies have actually shown that uh, behavior repression, so when we use willpower or self-control to not do something, actually causes a rebound effect. Um, so there's been studies that have looked at this in different ways. There was one study where they um, basically told people to suppress their thoughts about eating chocolate, and then they ended up consuming way more chocolate than the people who didn't. Um, there's been similar studies done in smokers where they've basically said that they, when smokers try to not think about smoking, they end up thinking about it and craving it even more. And so our, our brains are sort of, they're hardwired, right? To we're, we're basically going against its normal programming. So when we try to suppress uh, a behavior, we end up obsessing about it. And that means we're thinking about it more and then we're more likely to like, once we finally cave, right, then we do it even more. And so even though, you know, there needs to be intention, we want to kick in the part of our brain that is making decisions when we're trying to break a bad habit, but that like forcing, you know, I'm using my willpower to not do this thing is not the right way to go, right? It needs to be a much more um, like thought out conversation inside our brains, right? So one of the, the best ways to break a bad habit is to actually interfere with the behavior so that the prefrontal cortex needs to kick in and we actually just think about what we're doing, right? So um, if I'm going to break the habit of eating junk food in front of a movie and I don't want to replace that with something, I need some way of getting my brain to think about, oh yeah, I have this really positive uh, outcome expectancy that if I break this bad habit, uh, good things will happen because I'll, I, you know, I won't be sugaring myself up right before bed. I'll be able to sleep better. I know I feel better when I sleep better. So, um, you know, I've, I've engaged my <laughs> executive functioning to think about what I'm doing right now. And so this is no longer triggering this automatic behavior. And what they've done with, so for example, the, the people who eat popcorn at the movies and would even eat stale popcorn if it was put in front of them because it's a habit, the studies show that if they, the people were forced to eat with their non-dominant hand, that it broke the habit. So if they got the stale popcorn, they'd be like, ew, gross, this popcorn's stale. And they wouldn't eat it. And if they got the regular popcorn, they'd be like, yeah, I love my popcorn. This this but is mind-blowing, but also the fact that, like, this was a study. Like, <laughs> it's mind-blowing to me. It's like, if you were this person and they were like, okay, now eat it with your other hand, you'd be like, what? Right. Um, well, and I'm, I'm sure it was like, you know, let's strap your hand to your chair or something so that you can't, right? Like, because it's not... Right. So it's, but it's thinking of like what, what, depending on the habit that we're, we're trying to break, like what is the thing that can actually stop the action so that it gives, it gives some time for, again, conscious thought to kick in. Um, another way to do it is to figure out how to delay the action. Um, so one of the, one of the ways that we can do this is like move the snacks to a different cupboard. Right. So when you're on autopilot, you go to the cupboard where the snacks are, suddenly the snacks aren't there. Your thinking brain has to kick in and go, oh, I was going to the snacks automatically because I was about to put the movie on. Um, so now I can think about 
do I want to eat a snack now? Um, and what do I want that snack to be? Oh, no, wait, I remember there's positive outcome expectancy with no snacking. Okay, I'm going to get a glass of water and sit down instead, right? It gives us time to kind of reason through what it is that we're trying to accomplish in terms of breaking a bad habit. So whether it's a delay or an actual interference with, um, with the actual action, some way of like basically forcing the thinking brain to kick in is, um, effective. I mean, it's, it's still work. It's still not going to happen once. Right. It's not like I move the snacks once and then forever after I never snack. Um, but it's, it's the basically compared to, you know, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. And suddenly I'm sitting in front of the movie with a giant bag of candy and I'm eating more of it because I was trying to repress the behavior earlier. Right. So it's, it's subtly different. Um, so instead of that negative repressing, it's thinking it through reasoning, right. Um, breaking the automatic action part of it so that our thinking brain can kick in. And the other way to do it is to actually just look at the stimulus. What is, what is the thing that triggers this behavior? Can I remove the trigger? And that's actually by far the most the, the most effective way to break a bad habit. Um, it's actually why like people find it easier to quit smoking on vacation, why wellness retreats can be such a great jumpstart for people in their health journeys. So basically, if we change the environment, um, we change the trigger and the trigger is no longer there. So the automatic behavior doesn't happen. And if we can, uh, you know, break that cycle for long enough, the, the habit does eventually get unlearned. Um, and studies basically that have looked at treating substance abuse have found that this is really important because you have to treat both the biochemical addiction as well as the habit formation around substance abuse. And so, you know, studies have shown that changing the environment, right, this is why rehab centers are, can be very, very, um, powerful tools for, um, beating addiction. So, all of this is about really understanding like what is the trigger of this behavior. So maybe if we're trying to not um, eat snacks in front of, uh, you know, playing a movie on our TV in the evenings, we can try sitting in a different place, right. And watching the movie from a different angle. We can try, okay, well, I'm going to read books now <laughs> and I'm not going to watch movies for a while so I can break this habit. Um, right. We can look at what's, what's the trigger. Um, maybe the trigger is something involved in getting ready to watch the movie, but not the movie itself. So how is it that I get ready to watch that I can change how I get ready to watch a movie so that getting the snacks is not an automatic action that I'm doing. Um, and so that's a really interesting exercise and reflection, trying to identify the stimulus. Sometimes the stimulus is really complex. Sometimes it's something really general, which makes it really hard to alter. Um, but this, so uh, one thing to be really careful of is the unintentional removal of a good habit stimulus. And I think this is something that will resonate with a lot of people after uh, quarantine in 2020. So there's, there's been studies that have, um, there's a really interesting um, study done um, I think it was a Dutch study and they showed that, um, when people had a break from, from school or work for holidays, that it actually disrupted that good habit of going to the gym. And it was because if you, um, you know, my old habit pre COVID was drop, you know, my youngest kid off at school, keep going to the gym, work out at the gym, come home. 
And, you know, I'm not going to the gym because of COVID exposure. Like it, it, there's extra reasons there. I could have probably replaced that with a different habit. Um, but it's one of the things that I, I trying to figure out, like, how, how am I going to redevelop this good habit of going to the gym once, you know, once the, we're on the other side of the pandemic and, and we're ready to do this because this is a habit that hasn't, has it, hasn't had its trigger for 10 months now. Um, I, it's going to have to be a habit that I work on forming all over again. Um, and so really thinking about the stimulus for good habits and how to keep that, right, that stable context, right? Keep, keep that stimulus the same and then also be careful about what is stimulating a bad habit? How can you remove that? Th those things become really, really helpful. And then there's one sort of last strategy that has been shown to be very, very helpful for people in breaking bad habits when they're not um, replacing them with good habits, and that is mindfulness. Um, so there have been studies where they've looked at um, app-based mindfulness practice. So they put an app on a person's phone that sort of like walks them through very specific goals. Um, and they've done this in different contexts. So they've done it in um, sort of binge eating disorder, overeating. And they've shown that mindfulness practice was able to reduce craving-related eating by over 40%. And they've also done it with smoking. And they showed that this type of adding mindfulness practice around this habit helped um, people quit smoking five times more effectively than the American Lung Association's Freedom from Smoking Treatment. So that's a that's a pretty big uh, a pretty big factor of of improvement. Yeah, I'd say. Um, so one of the things that I did kind of want to circle back as you were talking, um, one of the words that we're using is bad habit, and we're associating it with a multitude of different things. Um, but I just want to reiterate what I know you you intend and we both mean which is you are not a bad person correct from having formed a habit that you now want to modify and we're we're using this umbrella of categorization as being something that does not contribute to your health right so i i am just sensitive to the mindset that happens at this time of year and how People are made to feel good or bad because of the choices that they make. And we are not here to impart that judgment on anybody. Um, I know I speak for us both when I say, like, we don't judge you. We're just here to help you make the best choices that you want to make that contribute to your health. And that might mean more exercise and activity, which we know contributes to health. It might be eating more vegetables, which we know contributes to health. It might be going to bed earlier, which we've talked about a lot in terms of um, habit formation on the podcast previously and certainly contributes to health. There are a lot of different things that you might be looking at, whether you're listening to the show six months from now, six years from now, um, and the timing might not even be New Year's related. But I know for me, um, I don't try to change my habits because it's a new year and there is no like new year, new me, I'm going to change everything about myself. And then you try to do too much and it's completely unsustainable because you can't possibly 
redevelop all of these different habits all at once. I mean, if there's anything Mm. that I'm hearing from this, it's you really do need to kind of like be mindful and take your time with things, right? So if you decided today, like, okay, I'm going to jump in and do all these different habits. I'm going to go to bed early. I'm going to drink more water. I'm going to change my vegetables. I'm going to reduce my sugar. I'm going to exercise. Like, I hate to break it to you, but the likelihood of you being successful with all of those things all at once is very low. And so I would like to encourage you to set yourself up for success and feel really proud and happy. Stimulate that good part of your brain, right, with the things that you are doing. Because what I'm hearing, Sarah, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that if you try to jump into these habits and you're not successful because it would be nearly impossible to do all of those things all at once and be a real person living a real life, um, then it's not going to, it's not going to go right. And then you're going to have this negative connotation in your brain of failure associated with trying to make these new habits. And then it's going to be even harder and less desirous for you to want to do them again. Is that, did I capture? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And actually, what's really interesting is it doesn't mean that we can't work on multiple different habits simultaneously. But when we're in that planning phase of how we're going to set ourselves up for this habit, thinking about the routine is really important. So how does this thing fit into my routine, right? That stable context. So you can definitely work on a habit of eating more vegetables and going to bed earlier and getting to the gym regularly. You could work on those all at the same time, but it really requires some very careful planning in terms of how they're going to intersect and how they're going to reinforce each other. So one of the one of the really important things that we can do in that reward phase, right? So like if the if the 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 plan is to go to the gym x, you know, times per week, it's really important to um, a dissociate that from uh, any kind of negative um, stimulus. So don't work out so hard that you throw up would be a really great way to avoid negative outcome expectancy when forming a good habit of of going to the gym. Right? Keep keep it fun. Keep it um, keep it you know, at a level where you're not going to be sore for five days, right? Like rein it in, make it, make it a positive experience. Um, and then you can notice how you feel better at the gym when you've gone to bed a little bit earlier, right? So you can, you can work on those things together, but it really requires that very careful planning of, okay, here's the, you know, two or three different habits I'm going to work on simultaneously. Here's the routine for each, Here's the stimulus for each. Here's the reward for each. Here's the positive outcome expectancy for each. Um, And here's how I'm going to maintain that routine because we really only have, um, like, in terms of that self-controller, that willpower, if we are requiring too much of it because we're trying to change too much all at once, um, it's really hard to maintain that consistency and... um, and routine long enough for the behavior to become automatic, to become a a habit. So um, I think depending on how you're combining things, you can definitely work on more than one thing at a time. Um, But it, it have a, have a really, you know, plan it, plan it. So really look at what's the stimulus. Is this replacing a bad habit? Um, What is, you know, how hard is this going to be? How much dedication do I need 
to apply to keep this routine until it's a habit. Um, and so if you're looking at doing multiple really hard things, um, maybe, maybe pull those back, right? Maybe do one really hard, you know, thing that you know is going to require dedication and, um, and is going to, you know, require a fairly large amount of engagement of the prefrontal cortex in the learning phase, right? Maybe keep that to one at a time and then throw, you know, you can throw in some couple of easier things at the same time that are going to be easier for you, right? What's an easy habit for me to form is not the same as an easy habit for Stacy to form or an easy habit for someone else to form um, because our mindset is so important and also our um, past behavior is really important. So if it's something we already kind of do a bit, right? I already go to the gym three times a week. It's going to be really easy for me to form a habit of going to the gym four or five times a week. Um, I never go to the gym. Going to the gym even three times a week is going to be a really hard habit to form, right? So um, so there's a lot of different um, ways that our experience can make this harder or easier as well. So be kind, be kind to yourself. Um, but definitely plan out how how you're going to develop those habits so that it's no longer the on again, off again wagon, right? The on again, off again wagon is because we're trying to muscle our way through against our automatic behavior and not really um, approaching change through embracing automatic behavior in the other direction. I like it. I... I have a couple of things that I want to work on and I like this idea of approaching things positively and rewarding myself accordingly. <laughs> like you don't have to tell me twice to reward myself. I'm like, okay, when I do this, I'm going to buy a new house plant. Um, anyway, I thought, I thought you were going to joke <laughs> I love there. That, I love that a house plant is the reward. I was like, I'm like waiting and waiting. No, like, that's the yeah. reward. Um, yeah, I mean, this is a complete side tangent, but um, we're going to need to do like an update on houseplants because I've been getting a ton of questions in social media as I have become like a new plant mom. It became my obsession in quarantine. We did a podcast previously on the ability for it to purify air. So it was like a thing that I became like, oh, I'm going to do this this year while everybody else was making sourdough bread. Mm -hmm. Um and now it's it's gotten out of hand. Like they all have names, and wow, yeah, it's it's a thing. <laughs> Are any of them named Bob? I need to know if there's a plant named Bob. There isn't, but we were just Wesley was just talking to me yesterday about how we needed a plant named Bob, and should we call it Robert, and then call it? But like, we should we name it Robert? Like and then Robert call it Bob? when the plant is in trouble, and then like then, when yes. the plant's doing a plants on its best behavior the plant could be bob yeah. yes yes we do have a we do have one named terry who it's a cactus and his fin bumped it and his arm fell off and so we have terry and terry's son because we're trying to propagate <laughs> terry's son <laughs> and he has like a twin at the nursery that we went to to get him who we call Randy. And we think that Terry is unhappy because we also didn't adopt Randy. Like it's yeah. this whole, I mean, we have conversation about our plants. I mean, what else are you going to do? Like we're losing our minds here. So um, we have funneled all of our positive energy into air purification plants. Um, and 
it makes a lot of sense to me that like, okay, Stacy, when you go to bed at a reasonable time, five days in a row, you can get a new plant. <laughs> so, I mean, I think that's a really interesting, like last little piece to end on. And that is that delayed reward is actually effective. Um, so as long as the reward is clearly linked to the act, to the behavior, um, delayed reward can even be more effective. Um, so like the anticipation of like, I did the thing, I get the reward, right? That I'm, actually I'm literally like patting help, myself on the back for help that. the habit better. So, yeah. um, you know, there's, there's a, there's a fine line, right? If it's, if it's delayed long enough that your brain can't associate the reward with, with the behavior, then it's basically doesn't count. Um, but if your if your brain is connecting the two, then delayed reward is totally effective. I'm patting myself on the back. So, I mean, we all need to pat ourselves on the back more often. <laughs> That's a good, a good habit to form for 2021. Well, um, so here's, here's some of the things that I do when I'm trying to get back into habit. How about that? Okay. Um, we talked about souping. Gosh, I think it was like two years ago now. Um, but I can't be effective in drinking more broth or eating more vegetables or whatever it is if I don't have them, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like if I open the fridge and I'm like, oh, there's no broth. I won't have a cup of a, a mug of broth or, you know, whatever it is. So I focus, I buckle down on kind of prep in having all of that more readily available um, and also putting those things in front of other things that might be in the fridge that I might be more drawn to, but I'm trying to break a habit with, so to speak, right? Like, so do you know what is absolutely fascinating about hearing you say this? This is my first, like, this is my New Year's resolution this year. My main resolution when my kids said, what New Year's resolution do you have this year? And it's like to make a big batch of soup every week so that there's always soup around. And not that my habit's to eat more soup or to have soup for every day for breakfast. Like that's not the goal. The goal is to just make sure that soup is an option because I know that if it's there, I will consume it more. But the habit is that I'm trying to work on is like making it every weekend. Well, you're talking to the soup lady. So if you need an accountability buddy, you just let me know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I always need an accountability buddy. What are you talking about? Yes. And I would say that's another thing that we haven't really talked about. But I do think that, um, and I'm, you know, I don't know if it showed up in the science, but having someone that you can talk to or be accountable with is really important in habit formation, especially beyond willpower and rewards. But I think... um, It's not my personality type, but I know from doing a lot of personality research in the last specifically year that there are the majority of people respond best to being accountable to someone else versus being accountable to themselves, which I think falls into that willpower control bucket, right? So I'm, I'm in the control bucket. I don't like being accountable to somebody else because I'm a rebel personality. And I'm like, Oh, you want me to do that? Okay, I'll do the opposite. Um, But I do think that when you're trying to establish habits, especially like um, going to the gym, meeting someone there, that's, that's a positive reward. it's It's part of the positive reward experience. And also, like not having a binge buddy or whatever, right? Like, 
that's, it's also part of removing, if we're working on a good habit together, when we know each other are the stimulus for the bad habit, it helps to remove the trigger because we're, we're doing it together. Does that make sense? Totally. Yeah. I can see how like all of that feeds in. And I think I have seen people in the neighborhood have well, maybe not in the wintertime, but especially in the spring and summer, they were kind of like accountability buddies together and they would social distance walk either Mm -hmm. on opposite sides of the street or, you know, like eight feet apart or whatever it was, but still like show up to walk together in the neighborhood to develop those habits. And then I think once you have the habits developed, it's so much easier. That's why, you know, I was doing that daily walk when the weather was nice and I was enjoying the fall. And then it and then the holidays happened, and now I've got to restart up. You lost your stimulus. I did. I've got to restart up because the boys weren't going to school, and so the bedtime slipped, and the schedule slipped, mm-hmm. and you know, now I gotta get back in the habit, and I really don't want to because it's so cold outside. Um, <laughs> and if I had a buddy who was like meeting me out there, I'd probably. I'd probably do better. So maybe I need to just grab one of these kids. My accountability buddy. Yeah. No, if I try to take Penny on a walk, she literally like puts her chest to the ground and (laughs) looks up at you like this is not happening. It is so cold outside. Woman, what is wrong with you? (laughs) Uh, That's this is not this is not my dog. My dog's like, walk, walk. We're going for a walk, walk, walk all day. So, yeah, I, I could probably go for five walks in a day and she would be delighted all I've got is my is my audible I do have a book to finish so that's like the one thing that is my positive it's a reward it's totally a reward it's like I only listen to those books that I really enjoy and want to finish when I'm doing my walk and that way like, it's the thing that I look forward to. Like, okay, well, it's going to be cold and whatever, but I can finish my book. So so I hope that encourages all of our listeners to, you know, think about embracing automatic behaviors, like how we can um, reinforce the good automatic behaviors that help us, you know, achieve our goals that contribute to success um, and how we can look at behaviors that we don't want to be so automatic and how we can um, maybe address the stimulus or the interfere with the behavior some ways or replace it with something good. I think that, you know, this is really the key to, to lasting change is being able to break cycles of automatic behaviors that are not doing us any favors and instead develop a series of automatic behaviors that basically keep us on track when we're not paying attention anymore. Um, and so that we don't need to use willpower all the time. And I, 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 you know, want to finish on the final note of there's no rule saying we only need to make resolutions on January 1st. Um, and so thinking about habits on a continuous basis, I think is really key to making positive lifelong change. Agreed. Thank you for listening. And if you want to hear what we really thought about this episode and what we're really doing to start the year, make sure you pop on over to Patreon and become part of our family over there to get the inside scoop behind the veil. Do you love the Whole View podcast? We'd love for you to leave us a review wherever you listen and share a podcast with your friends and family. 
And did you know that you can now get exclusive behind-the-scenes content on Patreon for less than the price of an almond milk matcha a month? Your Patreon membership supports us and gets you access to a monthly bonus episode. But not for kids' ears, because our bonus content is explicit. You can find us as The Whole View on Patreon for our real, unfiltered thoughts on this week's episode. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games.